0: Good morning. morning. Please be opening your Bibles this morning to Matthew chapter 14. Matthew 14. In our last sermon, we considered John the Baptist as a case study in speaking the truth. Like all true men of God, John fearlessly and unashamedly and unapologetically spoke the truth, didn't he? Not only did he speak the truth, he was willing to suffer for speaking the truth... John knew what was going on in the palace. He knew how to apply God's law to those real-life situations. He spoke the truth directly to King Herod, undeterred by his political position or power. And he persisted in that proclamation in the face of opposition because he knew that sin brings God's covenantal curses and righteousness brings the shalom of God on all of God's people. But today we're going to look at these same exact verses, but we're going to turn our attention away from John the Baptist to Herod and Herodias, where we see a case study in suppressing the truth. So Matthew fourteen three through 12. "'For when Herod had John arrested, he bound him and put him in prison because of Herodias, the wife of his brother Philip. For John had been saying to him, "'It's not lawful for you to have her.' Although Herod wanted to put him to death, he feared the crowd because they regarded John as a prophet. But when Herod's birthday came, the daughter of Herodias danced before them and pleased Herod so much that he promised with an oath to give her whatever she asked. And having been prompted by her mother, she said, "'Give me here on a platter the head of John the Baptist.'" Although he was grieved, the king commanded it to be given because of his oaths and because of his dinner guests. And he sent and had John beheaded in prison, and his head was brought on a platter and given to the girl, and she brought it to her mother. And his disciples came and took the body and buried it, and they went and reported to Jesus. What a dark, dark story indeed, isn't it? We're going to see here just two points, one that we're going to flesh, flesh, flesh out in 3 subpoints, and the other will be covered briefly, but God's enemies suppress the truth and God's enemies will suffer for suppressing the truth. So beginning with God's enemies suppress the truth, did you know that each and every son of Adam is born as an enemy of God? Every one. We all suppress the truth until we're born again. This is from the 1689 London Baptist Confession that we believe as a church that we hold to, chapter 6, about the fall of man. And it says, Adam and Eve's corrupted nature passed on to all their offspring. Their descendants are now conceived in sin and are by nature children of wrath, the servants of sin and partakers of death unless the Lord sets them for free. All actual transgressions arise from this first corruption. By it, we are thoroughly biased against and disabled and antagonistic toward all that is good. And we're completely inclined toward all that is evil. That's the state that mankind is born into. As the Apostle Paul would put it, just straight out of Scripture, Romans 8, 5 through 8. For those who are according to the flesh, they set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who are according to the Spirit the things of the Spirit. For the mind set on the flesh is death, but the mind set on the Spirit is life and peace. Because the carnal man is set on the flesh and it's hostile toward God, for it is not subject; it does not subject itself to the law of God and it's not even able to do so. So those that are in the flesh cannot please God. We're going to make three observations about Herod and Herodias, people who were by nature children of wrath. People who were these servants of sin, who were thoroughly biased against and disabled and antagonistic toward all that is good and completely inclined toward all that is evil. We're going to see that they suppress the light of conscience, first of all. That they suppress the light of God's law and that once you've done that, you descend deeper and deeper into darkness. But let's consider first that they suppress the light of conscience. Way before John the Baptist came on the scene, there was something else condemning them, speaking to them. Not only are people conceived in sin, they're also conceived with an innate knowledge of good and evil. We know right and wrong. It's not that they do wrong, but they just don't know any better. It's that they know better, but they choose to do wrong anyway. That's who people are. It's not poor, innocent people who don't know right and wrong. It's people who know right and wrong and they rebel against what they know in their heart to be right. That's the problem. Romans, 8, uh, Romans 1, 18 through 20 says, The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Because that which is known about God is evident within them. It's evident where? Within them. For God has made it evident to them since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power, and even his divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. Herod and Herodias, they were without excuse because they had the testimony of their consciences. Every man everywhere has a conscience. You know what that word conscience means? Con means with. And science means knowledge. When people do wrong, they know that they're doing wrong unless they've damaged their conscience in some way. You can sear your conscience as with a hot iron so you're no longer pricked by it but you knew at some point, didn't you? Or you can have a, um, you can have a defiled conscience according to Titus one fifteen. but you do that to yourself through abuse of that conscience, wearing it out by ignoring it. And there's enough going on in the background of this story with Herod and Herodias uh, to make the, Her- the consciences of Herod and Herodias absolutely explode, isn't there? We don't know exactly how everything went down, but we know enough to know that it was one messed up situation, don't we? Herod Antipas was married to the daughter of, uh, of an Arabian king of the Nabataeans, and Herodias was married to Herod Antipas's half brother. And Herod Antipas and Philip even had a. Uh, I'm sorry, Herodias and Philip. Herod Antipas and Philip did not have a daughter together. Herodias and Philip had a little girl together named Salome. And instead of being faithful to their marriages, they both followed their hearts. They broke their covenantal vows and they became a couple. And when I say follow their hearts, I mean they gave in to the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eye, and the pride of life. That's what people mean when, often when they say, "Well, I have to follow my heart." That's what they're giving into is a lust of the flesh, the lust of their eye, and the pride of life. That's where their heart's drawing them, and they're following exactly where their heart's telling them to go. And make no mistake, they both knew better. They could undoubtedly justify their actions. We can. When our conscience condemns us, it's we either accuse or excuse ourselves, is what Scripture says. We can justify our actions, can't we? When we're tugged at by the lusts and the impulses of our flesh, we can talk ourselves into any wrong that we want to do. We can tell ourselves why that it's okay and why it's really not that bad and how plenty of people are worse than us, can't we? Be aware. When that starts happening within your heart, that inner dialogue where you're talking yourself into doing something, you've got that that uh, pang of conscience going on and you start going down that path of telling yourself why you should be able to indulge what you're wanting to do, know that that's what's happening. That's your conscience. And any right thing that we know that we should do, we can talk ourselves right out of that too. Well, I, I know I should go to them, but they should come to me too. Right? We do that. We talk ourselves right into the wrong things and right out of the right things. But the pangs of conscience are still there until we numb it out of existence. And how many ways do you think that Herod and Herodias ignored the voice of conscience? Well, Herod knew it was wrong to betray his wife, didn't he? He's married to uh, um, Aretas' daughter, and he sends her back to her father, disgraced and deflowered, promising that that he'll take care of her, promising her he'll take care of her, and then he just casts her aside like like she's nothing. He knows she's a person with feelings and emotions, but he doesn't care because he's driven by his lusts, and he has to follow his heart. Herod knew it was wrong to create this politically explosive situation for the provinces over which he ruled. He knew that there could be political consequences, that it could even lead to war, and it did. Herod didn't care. Why? Because Herod wanted to do what Herod wanted to do. Therefore, he excused himself. He did. He went the way he went, hoping that the consequences wouldn't be there. But he knew better. Herod knew it was wrong to look at his own brother's wife with lust and covetousness. How messed up is that? That is whack, isn't it? Looking at your, any other woman than your wife, but your brother's wife. And Herod knew it was wrong to begin flirting with and wooing Herodias because it started with a look and then it progressed. That's the way sin does, doesn't it? Starts with a look and then it progresses and he starts, he starts getting a little out deeper. You wade into sin. You don't usually just dive. You usually wade, don't you? You get deeper and deeper. And Herodias knew it was wrong to seduce her brother-in-law or to reciprocate his advances. Herodias knew it was wrong to leave her husband and secure a divorce that violated Jewish law. Herodias knew it was wrong to take her daughter, Siloam, away from her father to be raised by her uncle. She ignored everything her conscience was telling her. More things could be added to this list, but you get the point. Of course they experienced conviction as they went down this debaucherous path. But they wouldn't allow the presence of guilt to rob them of a good time. We can kind of push that guilt to the side and then we get to do whatever we want. Who cares about the path of human suffering that might lie in our wake? We get to do what we want. We're so selfish, so self-centered. Mankind is so depraved that we not only know something is wrong but do it anyway. It's not not just that. It's often the rush of rebellion that drives the action. Have you ever noticed that? We often find something to be more fun because it's wrong. Because we know it's wrong. The excitement of the, we might get caught. It, anticip- it, it It elevates the pleasure in the sinful heart. Or, nobody can stop us. Nothing's going to stop us. Or, I bet that made them so mad and we enjoy that in our depravity, don't we? Often it fuels the action of the sinful heart so much, in fact, that an undergenerate man would almost dare someone to challenge them on it. And then, of course, in our story, someone does. And that someone is John the Baptist who comes with the law of God. But if they suppress the light of conscience, sometimes you get the law and it brings you to repentance, but sometimes you don't only suppress the, law, the light of conscience, you also suppress the light of God's law. And that's certainly what we see here in the story of Herod and Herodias. Reproof is a fork in the road of the sinful soul. Brothers and sisters, when someone comes to you with a rebuke or a correction, an admonition from God's law, they're coming to you telling you that they think you are wrong. You are at a fork in a road. Will we get angry when we're challenged concerning some aspect of faith and practice? Or will we embrace rebuke for the the blessing that it is? One of the great themes in Proverbs is that those who embrace rebuke are wise and that they walk the path of life, while those who despise rebuke are foolish and they're on the path of destruction. The one who rejects reproof is, in Solomon's words, not mine, he is stupid. Proverbs 12.1 And a fool, Proverbs 15.5. Solomon warns that ultimately such rejection of rebuke will lead to death, Proverbs 15.10. So that the man who rejects reproof does not only despise the messenger, but ultimately he's truly just despising himself. But on the flip side, the reproofs of discipline are the way of life, Proverbs 6.23. So he who heeds reproof is on the path of life, Proverbs 10.17. He loves knowledge, 12.1, and that love of knowledge will lead him to being honored, Proverbs 13.18. Such a man is prudent, Proverbs 15.5, so that he will dwell among the wise, Proverbs 15.31, and gain intelligence. To the one who embraces rebuke, God says, I will pour out my spirit on you. That's a promise. But to the one who despises it, he says, I will ultimately laugh at your calamity. God will laugh at your calamity. That's what God's Word says. Uh, it will be said of those who reject correction, they will eat of the fruit of their own way and have the fill of their own devices. And it's only a matter of time until they themselves will say, I'm at the brink of utter ruin, Proverbs 5, 12-14. And when ruin comes for the fool who resists reproof, it will be sudden and devastating. He who is often reproved yet hardens his neck, stiffens his neck, is resolved to continue down that path, he will suddenly be destroyed and that without remedy. That's the end that we're headed toward when we harden ourselves against the rebuke of God's law when we're in sin. As God's enemies, what do you think Herodias did when confronted with God's law by John the Baptist? Verse 3, when Herod had John arrested and bound him and put him in prison because of Herodias. I think Herod was the head of his household, but Herodias was the neck that turned the head, don't y'all? John had, Herod had John arrested, bound him and put him in prison because of Herodias. For John had been saying to him... It's not lawful for you to have her. And although Herod wanted to put him to death, he feared the crowd because they regarded John as a prophet. As we saw last week, John the Baptist was not going to allow that wickedness to go on in Palestine by a so-called leader without calling him to repentance. But cause the repentance land differently depending on the type of person that you are. Proverbs 9, 8. Do not reprove a scoffer or he will hate you. But if you reprove a wise man, he will love you. Both Herod and Herodias were furious because of John's correction and she, even more than Herod, wanted John dead. Had it not been for Herod's fear of the multitudes due to them regarding John as a prophet, John would have been executed immediately. This because of Herodias, though it really sticks out. It was because of her insistence that Herod... Arrested John. Herodias was a decisive woman who aggressively suppressed the truth by wanting to get rid of the truth teller. You know those people that don't want to be around religious things whatsoever? Don't mention religion around them. They will become aggressive and angry immediately at the mere. If you just bring the subject up, that's that's Herodias. She absolutely didn't want to hear it. We get more detail from Mark's the, in the Synoptics, the parallel passage in Mark six nineteen through twenty. Herodias had a grudge against John. That means she was hostile toward John, bore ill will, was irritated and resentful, and she wanted to put him to death and could not do so. I want to point this out because in our culture it's challenged. Men are not more sinful than women women are not more sinful than men. There are many differences between the sexes and although their sin might manifest differently, it's no more or less real within the hearts of either sex. I've seen it where people want to rebuke all the men when they're wrong, but that poor innocent little woman. No, it's the sinful man and the sinful woman. And to lead them, we've got to rebuke sin in both directions, don't we? We're doing a disservice to our ladies when we don't talk about their sin or we act like that it's not there. And that's why we don't, in our culture, believe all women. For a biblical case study on that, look at Potiphar's wife with Joseph, right? Believing all women is foolish. And it's a denial of homartology, of the doctrine of sin, of knowing that all men and women are equally touched by the effects of the fall. Anyway... Look at how Mark presents Herod in comparison to Herodias in, verse 20, in Mark 6.20. I mentioned Mark 6.19. Herodias had a grudge against him, wanted to put him to death and could not do so. For Herod was afraid of John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. And when he heard him, he was very perplexed and he, because he used to enjoy, but he used to enjoy listening to him. So we see Herodias suppressed the truth of God's law, but so did Herod. But what do we do with this discrepancy? We have another alleged contradiction in the Bible. Do we ignore those at Manorville Fellowship when you find an alleged contradiction? It looks like Scripture contradicts itself. Do we ignore it or do we address it? Every single time, don't we? Matthew said Herod didn't kill John because Herod feared the crowd, Right? But Mark said that it was because he was afraid of John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man. Is it time to throw away our Bibles this time and go home? Well, once again, just a bit of thinking and study clears this up. When we see Herod, we observe the limp-wristed, effeminate pansy man in his natural habitat. That's what I like to say. That's who he was. Those who wear soft clothing dwell in king's palaces indeed. That's where they hang out. John the Baptist was a man who feared no one but God. And Herod was a man who feared everyone except God. He was scared of Herodias, so he had John arrested. Herod was certainly not interested in the merits of the rebuke. In Herod's mind, he was above the law. It really probably looked at Herod as an annoyance, but it looked at John as kind of annoyance, but kind of like a, a little gnat that didn't even really matter. Herod was like I'm the king or the tetrarch at least and in his mind those titles are the same. Who are you to tell me how to live or what to do? God often uses power, prestige and possessions to harden a man in his sins. We want those things. You better be careful. Many times it's those things that harden you and bring you to destruction. And that's certainly what we see in Herod. In the beginning, he wanted to have John killed only because of his fear of the crowds. And that fear of the crowds, thinking he was a prophet, kept him from it. That's how it was in the beginning. So he went to talk to John and was perplexed by what he says, according to Mark 6. The word translated perplexed is uh, a and The root word uh, pa- pareo is to cause, to go, or to set in motion. If you put an A in front of something, what does it mean? If you put an A, if you're a theist, you put an A in front of it, you mean you're not a theist, right? Uh-huh. So... instead of he went and he talked to John, and instead of it causing him to go or putting him in motion, you put that A in front of it, and it means the opposite thing. It caused him not to go. It caused him not to go into motion. It caused him to be brought to a point of hesitation. So a timeline would be like this. Herod was afraid to kill John when he first arrested him because of the crowds. And then he went to talk to John to size him up, to find a, to try to find an excuse to kill him, to where it would be justified. He could explain it to the crowds. He could appease Herodias, his wife, keep her happy. If Mama ain't happy, ain't nobody happy, right? And. He could excuse it in the sight of the crowd because, hey, I interviewed him and I had to kill him. But once he talked with John, his fear expanded from being only of the crowds to being of John the Baptist too. The crowds regarded John as a prophet. And after hearing John, Herod saw him at least as a righteous and holy man. The text doesn't say that Herod recognized John as a prophet, but Herod was impressed by him. Notice that Mark 6.20 doesn't say that he enjoyed the discussion. It says that he used to enjoy listening to him. So they talked on several occasions. It's easy to imagine that some of these sessions, might have been what they might have been like. John would have spoken on righteousness, self-control, and judgment to come like Paul did with Felix in Acts 24. Can't you just imagine Herod trembling like Felix did? He might have even agreed with John. Oh, I see what you're getting at, John. You make good points. It's hard to argue with your consistent application of truth. You're a good man. I admire you. Herodias was a decisive woman who aggressively suppressed the truth wanting to eliminate the truth teller. But Herod wasn't wired like her. Herod was a fearful man whose fear led to indecisiveness. Did you know that there's a lot of people that are the antagonistic, they hear truth and they want to get rid of it all and they get aggressive and they want you to shut up and not talk about it? And there's a lot of rebels that sit on the pew every Sunday. And they hear it week after week. And in their heart, they kind of agree with it. They kind of see where you're going. They kind of see what you're getting at. But they absolutely refuse to repent. Guys, many times, that person is more wicked than the one who just don't want to hear it at all. At first... He didn't kill John because he feared the people. Later, he didn't kill him because he feared John as a righteous holy man. Some part of him believed John's call to repentance was according to truth and righteousness. But although he respected John, he certainly wouldn't let him go because that would cause trouble at home. And he certainly wouldn't repent because he loved his sin. Herodias' suppression of the truth was bold and Herod's was filled with cowardice and self-indulgence. But they both refused to repent. They both suppressed the truth in their unrighteousness. I want to ask you this. Is that you? You've got to ask yourself that question. Do you hear truth and reject it and refuse it? Do you have willful known sins that you are indulging, that you are living in and you're going to church and it kind of salves your conscience, but in reality you're like Herod. You go and listen and you enjoy listening but you're in direct rebellion against God's law. You're still suppressing the truth in your unrighteousness. I say to you the same call that John gave to Herod, and it is repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. You're in no better state. They both refused to repent. But Herod couldn't straddle the fence forever, though, because once people reject the light, you know what you find? They descend deeper and deeper into darkness. When a man rejects the light of conscience and the light of God's law, once called to repentance, God removes that light. He gives them over. We quoted from Romans 1 earlier. Let's return there now in Romans 1, 21-31. Even though they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks. But they became futile in their speculations, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Verse 24, Therefore God gave them over. Guys, when you harden your hearts and your sin, realize you are in dangerous territory. God might just give you over. Stop dealing with you. He gave them over in the lusts of their hearts to impurity so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. Verse 28. And just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over, same word again, to a depraved mind, to those things that are not proper. Proper, being filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, and unmerciful. The descent, it starts with that little bit of waiting and before long you're in over your head in wickedness. We've talked about the wickedness that led John the Baptist, led to John the Baptist calling Herod and Herodias out. And it was pretty bad stuff, wasn't it? You remember that where they ignored conscience, all that those things that they clearly ignored that you know they would have experienced guilt concerning, but they suppressed that? He ain't seen nothing yet. Verses six through eleven. When Herod's birthday came, the daughter of Herodias danced before them and pleased Herod so much that he promised with an oath to give her whatever she asked. Having been prompted by her mother, she said, Give me here on a platter the head of John the Baptist. And although he was grieved, the king commanded it to be given because of his oaths and because of his dinner guests. He sent and had John beheaded in prison, and his head was brought on a platter and given to the girl, and she brought it to her mother. Let's begin with this sensuality. Verse 6 when Herod's birthday came. Birthday is translated better as actually birthday feast. You know, I I went to his birthday. We mean a birthday feast too. You didn't go to his birthday. What's that mean? So a, a birthday feast. We don't think much about that. and We're tempted to read right over it because our culture today, birthday celebrations are accepted as important and enjoyable social events, right? But the celebration of birthdays was not an Israelite custom. And I'm not saying birthdays are wrong. If you've got one scheduled, keep your party. Okay? But it was not part of, of Jewish culture. So when Herod celebrated his birthday, he was acting in accordance with pagan customs and showing exactly how not Jewish he was. He was rejecting his Jewish roots, his Jewish, the Jewish religion over which he was king, and he was, he was being conformed to this world. Increasingly saying, no, not that worldview, but this worldview. That's what we see going on here. And even more concerning than the fact that Herod celebrated his birthday is the manner by which he celebrated it. When a man ignores his conscience and gives in to every desire in something as big as stealing his own brother's wife, he trains himself to indulge his every desire. It's a slippery slope. You give in to one and you, before long, you, you, you act on impulse. You become like an unreasoning animal that just gives in every impulse, every craving. You just, that's what I'm going to do. Why? Because that's what I want right now in the moment. Immediate gratification becomes God. And it's clear from the context that what was, that this was quite the party. In the ancient world, birthday celebrations were entirely Gentile and pagan. And the Jews, with good reason, considered them shameful... Roman nobles frequently held stag birthday parties in which gluttony, excessive drinking, erotic dancing, and sexual indulgence were the were the norm, and that's exactly what we see going on here. In the midst of that, we see manipulation. Sinful people not only they're not only sensual, but they become manipulative. They try to find ways to manipulate people to get their way. And Herodias wants John the Baptist dead. Remember, he, she wants that bad. She's got that grudge, and. Her thirst for revenge is completely consuming her. She knows her so-called husband, Herod, and she knows that he often overindulges on the wine and the strong drink. She also knows that his judgment is questionable on a good day. But when he's getting his drunk on, that he'll have no filter whatsoever. She also knows he's an unprincipled man who's enslaved by his desires for sensual pleasure. She's awakened those desires before and gotten him to do things with her. And she knows that's easy to do with old Herod. So she sets him up. Mark uses a little bit different language about that. In Mark 6.21 it says, On a strategic day came when Herod on his birthday gave a banquet for his lords and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. Strategic for Herodias. She wanted him dead. She had the grudge. John the, uh, Herod wouldn't kill John the Baptist because he thought he was a righteous and holy man. But then this strategic day came. And she's going to capitalize on it. This wicked woman had few equals in immorality, evil, cunning, and vindictiveness. From the time of John's first rebuke, she had been scheming to rid herself of this meddlesome prophet who shined a light on her sins and also fueled the disdain that that her Jewish subjects had for her and for Herod already. She was biding her time, waiting on the right opportunity, and here it is. But how would she do it? Well, she'd do it by unthinkable debauchery. Oh, this, this gets weird. When you read this and you actually think about it, it, it's like rated R. This ain't even PG-13. This is messed up stuff. The daughter of Herodias danced before them and pleased Herod so much that he promised with an oath to give her whatever she asked. Now let's make sure we understand just how sick and twisted all this is. Herodias had a daughter. Her name's Salome. We know that from Josephus' writings with her true husband, Philip. And I say little girl because the word that's used here is the same word that Matthew used for Jairus' daughter in 9.24-25. through 25. That word would be used for a young girl between 12 and 14 years old. The timeline produced by researching the historical records also supports that age range. That's somewhere around how old she was. The word usage and history tells us that. So Herodias sends her own young daughter into this room filled with men. Twelve, fourteen-year-old, and there's a room filled with men. King Herod, his lords, military commanders, and the leading men of Galilee, it says in Mark 621. And what did she have her do? Well, she had them, her dance before them. Which makes it plain that this is a public performance. Out in front of all of these drunken men, a room full of these people, she gets her 12 to 14-year-old daughter to dance in front of them. The thought of a young princess performing an exotic dance before a crowd of drunken men is repulsive. But the more you think about it, the worse it gets. Salome is Herod's niece. And he's, he's kind of standing as a stepfather-like figure. Any decent man would be offended if his 12 to 14-year-old niece started dancing provocatively in front of a, dr- a bunch of drunken men. I'll tell you this, for any of my nieces, I'd be ready to fight everybody in that room. <coughs> any real man would. But Herod was no decent man. And Herodias knew exactly what she was doing. She understood men in general, and Herod in particular. She knew that both he and his drunken friends would be aroused by this young girl's dance. So in her depravity, Herodias wanted a man who she considered to be her own husband. Her own husband. To be aroused by the dancing of her own daughter. And that daughter was also the niece of her own so-called husband. And then it gets worse because it actually worked. The text tells us that the dance pleased Herod. This word means to please, satisfy, uh, flatter, or even excite. The word is often used as a euphemism for sexually aroused. Her glamorous appearance and exotic movements pleased Herod to such an extent that he losing any sense of propriety or dignity if he ever had any. "...promised under oath to give Siloam whatever she might ask, even up to half his kingdom," Mark 6.23 says. Man, when you're drunk, you do some stupid stuff, don't you? Those impulses take you a long way away. In exchange for what? Well, what was he negotiating for here? What did he hope to gain? The text doesn't say, but it doesn't take too creative of an imagination to figure it out. What's he promising to give her that in exchange for? after an erotic, exotic dance. Sin will make you more wicked than you could ever imagine. It's been used over and over by, by preachers. I don't know where this quote originated from, but sin will take you farther than you want to go. It'll keep you longer than you want to stay, and it'll cost you more than you want to pay. You start dabbling in sin, and you get a rush, but you feel guilt. You ignore the guilt, you chase the rush. The next time you feel less guilt and less rush. So you have to wade deeper into the sin to get the same effect. It's the way it works. What you did that excited you last time, that doesn't excite you anymore. So you've got to go a step farther. Because it's actually that pain of conscience that makes it exciting because you're so depraved that you like doing things that are actually wrong. And you have to feel the wrongness of it to get the rush out of it. Before long, your conscience doesn't work at all. And you will do anything and everything to get your way or to achieve some fleeting pleasure. Herodias wanted to get her way, and Herod wanted pleasure. Not only do we see sexual debauchery on our little ancient Epstein Island. We think things are bad now. Guys, the same stuff that's going on now, it's gone on for thousands of years. We see unthinkable brutality. Not just unthinkable debauchery, but look at this in verse 8 through 11. "'Having been prompted by her mother, she said, "'Give me here on a platter, the head of John the Baptist.' "'And although he was grieved, the king commanded it to be given "'because of his oaths and because of his dinner guests. "'He sent and had John beheaded in prison, "'and his head was brought on a platter and given to the girl, "'and she brought it to her mother.' Herodias' motivation is clear. She wanted John the Baptist dead, and she was going to get it done." So not only did Herodias push her daughter toward sexual sin, she actually involved her daughter in a conspiracy to commit murder. Man, depravity takes you a long way, doesn't it? And not just a normal murder, as if that's a thing. This isn't just a, hey, you know, see to it, get it done. I don't want to see it, I don't want to know about it. But a morbidly brutal murder. She wanted John the Baptist beheaded and his head brought out in front of everyone at this huge dinner party. Lords and generals and commanders, everybody there. And in the middle of this, after this erotic dance and this sexual debauchery, this is what's asked and they take a break from all the sexual sin to get to this. Ahead was often seen in barbaric pagan nations as a trophy of war. She may have intended that as her message, but at the very least it was tangible proof of death, wasn't it? She wanted the head brought out in front of everyone to see. She wanted everybody to know you don't mess with, you don't cross Herodias. And she wants this head brought out in front of everybody. She's, she's proud of how brutal she is, how ruthless she is. Think about this. Nothing in the narrative indicates that Siloam had any particular animosity against John. So the message from Herodias to Salome was that if anybody ever tells you that you're wrong, you need to eliminate that person. Right? Don't consider the merits of what they're saying. Finish them. It goes to like Mortal combat, doesn't it? She's training her on the path of death from the book of Proverbs. Herodias was able to communicate enough of her anger to her daughter to get her to make the request. It was on her urging that Salome specified that she wanted the head of John the Baptist here at once, it says in, in March Synoptic, that he wanted she wanted it at once. Probably for two reasons. Because Herodias wanted to make sure that Herod didn't come off his drunken stupor, sober up, and get some sense about him. But also because she wanted everybody to see how brutal and ruthless that she was. Isn't it true that when you get deep into sin, you become so proud of it, you want to tell people about your escapades and the things you've done, how mean you are, how many people you've hurt, how many people that you've slept with, how many things you've done wrong? That's the heart of man. You become proud of what you should be ashamed of. The shame goes away. Not only does the conscience start, stop working, you actually turn it inside out to where you start bragging about how mean you are. I've seen people do that about their kids. Oh, look at my three-year-old. Oh, he's so mean. Then you need to spank him and get him straightened up. I don't know why you're so proud of that. Get your kid under control if he's so mean. Why are you bragging about that? Why do you think that's cute? We've got messed up ideas because of our depravity. Quickly and coldly, John was decapitated in this cell. And his head was brought out on a platter and given to the girl. And she brought it to her mother. As gruesome as this act was, such things weren't uncommon in those days. Potentates had life and death power over their subjects and prisoners. And that power was frequently exercised and seldom questioned. One writer comments, When the dish was brought in with the the bleeding head on it, no doubt Salon took it daintily in her hands, lest a drop of it should stain her. And she tripped away to her mother as if bearing her some choice dish of food from the king's table. The early church father, Jerome, wrote that when John's head was brought to Herodias, get this, this is history, this isn't in the scriptures, but this is what the early church father, Jerome, said, that Herodias spat on the head, pulled out his tongue, and drove a hairpin through it into the table. We don't know for sure whether that's historical or not, but it would not have been at the least out of character for Herodias. Sin progresses to unfathomably dark acts. I want to emphasize again, if you are ignoring the light of conscience, if you are ignoring the light of counsel, stop. This will take you to dangerously dark places. Stop. Repent. But we don't see repentance from Herod, we see we see now Herod's willful suppression on display. Although he was grieved. What's that telling you about? Although he was grieved. The light of what was still there? Conscience. Although he was grieved, the king commanded it to be given because of his oaths and because of his dinner guests. He had John beheaded in the prison. Mark clearly indicates that a warmth toward John the Baptist had developed in Herod's heart. We see a less detailed yet still clear indication of that warmth here in verse 9. Herod was grieved. He was hurt, pained, sad, to be heavy hearted. Herod knew that John was a righteous man. He knew that ordering his execution was an evil act, and in his heart of hearts, he didn't want to do it. But two things outweighed his grief his oaths and his guests. We we'll start with the oaths. Herod wanted to be a man of his word. This time, isn't it, isn't it funny how man we, we man? I just have to do this one. We'll lie about everything, but some people, they, certain things, they'll just I'll hold to that. And I'm going. To, that's, the inconsistency of the depraved parts. Amazing to me. It's the height of absurdity for a man who ended his marriage with his wife without cause and ran off with his brother's wife to a, to a, that this man would allege that his impe- impeccable character kept him from breaking this unwise vow. Yeah, you ain't got too many problems breaking vows. But he wasn't going to break this one. Especially when you consider the fact that decapitation was contrary to Jewish law. It was was not a legal form of execution for the Jews. And even if it had been a sanctioned form of capital punishment, Jewish law forbade execution without a trial. They said if you execute without a trial, then that's murder, not capital punishment. Where's the trial? Well, there's not one. And Herod is supposed to be a tetrarch of these Jewish people enforcing and upholding Jewish laws. It would have been easy to get out of this predicament. He could have said to Siloam, I promised you a favor with a gift. I certainly didn't promise to commit a crime. But Herod lacked the courage, the humility, and probably the sobriety and clarity of mind to employ logic or reason. Plus the other consideration was likely more decisive, the guests. Like most weak men, Herod feared being thought of as weak. Guys, if doing right makes you look weak in front of other men, be strong enough to not care if they think you're weak because you're doing what's right. That's what true strength of character is about. You stand alone. You do it even when you're not celebrated. You do it when you're going to be despised. You do it anyway. But Herod didn't have character. He didn't want to be thought of as weak. He'd been publicly challenged to have John beheaded. Can't you just hear all the drunken man? Oh, it's getting real now. Or... Oh, this little girl ain't playing. Or off with his head. Surely some of our own lingo and cultural references are embedded in my imagination from the banter of these guests. But they were certainly pushing for Herod to fulfill his word in whatever ways were culturally relevant at that time. A drunken, riotous, yeah, get him. Don't be a wuss, Herod. Do it. Fear get gets us a lot because we care more what men think than we care about what God thinks. Of supreme importance to him were the oaths made before the guests. That was the point. And the necessity not to lose face before him. And once again, his fear of man led Herod to violate his own conscience and do something horrific that he knew wasn't right. He gave the necessary order and John was beheaded. And as Salome requested, the head was brought on a platter and given to her. Not surprisingly, she gave it to her mother. Herod made Herodias happy, got what he wanted out of Siloam, no doubt, and satisfied his guests. And all he had to do was completely ignore the light of conscience and the light of God's law. That's all. Guys, that's a lot. (laughs) And so died the last of the Old Testament prophets. The old age ends in violence. So John the Baptist's story ends with his death and Herod's story ends with him on the throne ordering an unlawful execution. Not so fast. story's not over. God's enemies suffer for suppressing the truth. And God's people, they are vindicated, as we saw last week. Where is this point in our text? Well, it isn't directly in our verses, but it is hidden out in the background. Look at verse 12. John's disciples, his disciples, came and took away the body and buried it. And they went and reported to Jesus. John the Baptist had warned that Jesus was the Messiah and that a judgment of separation was coming. Do you remember what John said would the Messiah would do in Matthew 3 11 through 12 As for me I baptize you with water for repentance but he who is coming after me is mightier than I and I'm not fit to remove his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire and this fire is a fire of judgment. His winnowing fork is in hand and he will thoroughly clear his threshing floor. He will gather his wheat into the barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. But then in the very next chapter, John's arrested, and what did Jesus do? John 4.12, when Jesus heard that John had been arrested and taken into custody, he withdrew into Galilee. The word for withdrew here means to retire, withdraw from battle. He, did, he didn't go punish anybody. And, and, and then look in our, in our, in our verse... Jesus receives word that John's been beheaded. When he he heard that he was arrested, he withdrew. When he heard that he's beheaded, what do we see in our next verse in Matthew 14, 13? Now, when Jesus heard about John, he withdrew. Again, both times, bad things happen to John. John's warned that a day of separation is coming. Both times, bad things happen to John. And Jesus does not come with fire. He doesn't come winnowing fork in hand. He doesn't burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. What gives? Does Jesus not care about justice? Why is the head thumping not ensuing forthright? Why not? Well, Jesus had a field to buy. And that field was the whole world. He had to purchase authority by dying on the cross. He had to live that perfect life, fulfill all of God's law, and redeem the world through his sacrificial death, and in so doing conquer death itself and have authority over death, hell, and the grave. He couldn't cast people into hell if he didn't have authority over hell. And he couldn't raise people from the grave if he didn't have authority over the grave. But on the cross, he gained that universal authority. He paid for the sins of his people. His people that believed by faith. We're all sinners, but those that trust in him by faith, like John the Baptist, would one day have a resurrection. The dead would be raised. But those who didn't believe, he came the first time as a lamb. And he's coming back as a lion. We've not seen the end of the story for Herod. There's a resurrection of the just and of the unjust. John 5, 28 through 29. Do not marvel at this, Jesus says, for an hour is coming in which all who were in the tombs will hear his voice and will come forth, those who did the good deeds to a resurrection of life and those who committed the evil deeds to a resurrection of judgment. That winnowing fork is coming then in that resurrection of the just and of the unjust with the just being then gathered into the barns and the unjust then being punished with everlasting torment. And it's in this final judgment that Herod will be fully judged. Sure, he's in hell already, but there's more. Revelation twenty thirteen through 14 talks about this last day when the sea would give up her dead which were in it and death and Hades would give up the dead which were in them and they were judged, every one of them according to their deeds. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire and this is the second death, the lake of fire. Should we find comfort in that? seems sort of morbid to find comfort in that. But it's not. Revelation 6, 9 through 11. I'm going to read that and I want to close there. I want you to turn there with me. Revelation 6, 9 through 11. When the Lamb broke the fifth seal, I saw underneath the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the Word of God and because of the testimony which they maintained. Do you think John the Baptist was in that number? Of course he was, wasn't he? The souls of all those who had been slain were there. And they cried out with a loud voice. And what did they say? They said, How long, O Lord, holy and true, will you refrain from judging and avenging our blood on those who dwell on the earth? And there was given to each of them a white robe. And they were told that they should rest for just a little while longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brethren who were killed, even as they had been, would be completed also. For those who have suffered for speaking the truth, there is comfort. Guys, that number's not finished yet. You know how? I know we're still here. And there's still people being added to that. These people, God's people, speak the truth and are willing to suffer for speaking the truth. Those people are still here. They're still suffering. And there's still martyrs being added to that right now. But the day is coming when they will spring forth alive again from the dead, reaping the reward of their faith. Justice is a certainty. What was done wrong to them will be made right. But for those who suppress the truth, there's warning. You will one day suffer. Justice is a certainty. There, they, how long, O oh Lord? Just a little while longer. And your blood will be avenged. I tell you now, have you been one who suppresses the truth of conscience? Are you suppressing the truth of your conscience, the light of your conscience, even right now? Have you suppressed the light of God's Word, neglected His Word, refused to read, seek truth, or listen when you find it? The good news is that if you repent, there is mercy. There's mercy free. It's lavished upon us. It is available just by faith. We submit and everything's gone. Because Christ has paid it all for those who believe, those who trust in Him. But if you harden your heart, you will suddenly be destroyed. If you stiffen your neck, you will suddenly be destroyed in that without remedy. You have a day of reckoning coming. Make your calling and election sure. Be ready. Kind and of gracious Heavenly Father God, we come before you thankful for this case study in suppressing the truth. God, I pray that you would make us people who uh, are willing to speak the truth and that would never suppress it. Lord, that we would listen to the light of... Conscience and the light of your law when we uh, are wayward and in sin. And God, I pray that where we have come short, that you would let us look to Christ Jesus and to him alone for satisfaction for our sins, that we would trust in his shed blood on our behalf, and that we would speak the truth to others, calling them to do likewise. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.